This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi guys, it's Elise Lunen, Chief Content Officer at Goop and co-host of the Goop podcast. Today, I'm sharing one of my favorite conversations from our InGoop Health Wellness Summit in London with Yoan Hari. But first, I'd like to thank the one atelier, Fakai, who made today's episode possible. There's been a lot of innovation in the clean beauty space, but Jean Godfrey June, our executive beauty director, will tell you that one of the most exciting things to happen in a while is this, a new line of high-performance clean hair products designed in the salon of one of the world's top hairdressers, Frederick Fakai. It's called the Pure Collection by the One Atelier Fikai. It's made with 95% natural ingredients, including soothing aloe vera. There are no sulfates, parabens, or silicones. It's vegan and naturally fragranced, and it really works. Jean loves the Pure Shampoo, Conditioner, and Mist so much, we've got them stocked in the Goop shop now. But you can also shop the Pure Collection at theonebyfikai.com. And if you're on their site, you can enter Goop at checkout to get 20% off your purchase of the Pure Shampoo, Conditioner, or Mist. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Johan Hari is the author of Lost Connections and Covering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. He joined us this year at InGoop Health London to talk about the findings of his book, and let's just say that we've been raving about him since. He wrote the book because he was stuck on the mystery of why depression is continually increasing each year. He explores the causes of depression and anxiety, how yes, some of them are biological, but many of the reasons behind depression are actually social. In my chat today, we cover a lot, like antidepressants and how we need to expand our understanding of them, and how our culture has a huge influence on our mental health. We talk about pain, how in Johan's perspective, depression is grief of our own needs not being met, and most importantly, what solutions we have for resolving that pain. We are the loneliest society in human history. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. This was such an honest, compelling conversation. Let's cut to it now. I'm so excited to get into this book with you, and I can see you're a hydrator. <laughs> I actually feel weirdly out of place at a Gooper thing, just because you all look so healthy, and I'm so confident I'm the only person in this room who's eaten at KFC in the last week. So I feel, like, horribly... 
Uh, I also feel slightly weird because the first, oh, is there another KFC yeah. person? But you look weirdly radiant and healthy with it. It's so unfair, right? You should look like me. Also, I always feel weird when, you know when you have to wear these uh, microphones? The first time I ever had to wear one of these was when I gave a TED talk and I said to, to the technician as he was putting it on me, oh, you know, if you make me wear this, I'm going to feel like Madonna. And he looked at me really intensely and he said, uh, you should always feel like Madonna. <laughs> so, so now, whenever I wear one of these, I get this really strong urge to, like, whatever I'm asked about, just sing Papa Don't Preach. So uh, yeah. if that happens, don't judge me. And we'll get you a reformer, and then you can bounce on it like Tony Robbins. <laughs> exactly. The Madonna-Tony hybrid. Well, exactly. I know that your latest book was very personal to you as someone who struggled with depression for most of your life. It's probably personal to a majority of the people in this room, either affecting you or people you love. And I loved, the book is beautiful. Everyone should read it. And it's such a funny book in a way because it is so, it feels so exceptionally obvious. Don't take offense at that. Yeah, yeah. But you read it and you're like, oh my God, of course, of course. It's so intuitive and it makes so much sense. And the book is really sort of a deprogramming of what we've culturally been taught to believe about depression and by extension anxiety, because you sort of explore how they're very related. So where would you like to start? Should we sort of talk about this idea that as a child, you were told that it was in your head, and then when you were diagnosed with depression and given an antidepressant, you were also told it was in your head, and sort of what those two versions of depression we've been sort of schooled on? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. You know, I, I wrote the book because there were these two mysteries that were really hanging over me. And to be honest, I was, I was quite afraid to look into them. The, the first mystery is, I'm 40 years old, and every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased in the United States, in Britain, and across the Western world. And I wanted to understand, well, why? Mm -hmm. Why is this happening to us? Why are so many of us, as each year that passes, finding it harder to get through the day? And I wanted to understand this also because of a, a more personal reason, as you say. When I was a teenager, I remember going to my doctor and explaining that I had this feeling like, um, like pain was kind of leaking out of me. And I couldn't control it. I couldn't regulate it. And my doctor told me that day a story I'm sure lots of people in this room were told, which I now realize is not totally wrong, but it was really oversimplified. He said, we know why people feel like this. Some people just have a natural chemical imbalance in their brains. All we need to do is give you a drug to get your chemical balance back to normal. So I started taking an antidepressant called Paxil or Siroxat. It's the same thing. And I felt you know, significantly better at first. Got a real boost. And then this feeling of pain came back, so I went back. I was given higher and higher doses until for 13 years I was taking the maximum possible dose that you're allowed to take. And at the end of that, I was asking myself, well, why do I still feel in such pain? I'm doing everything I'm being told by the story that we're, we're, we're given in this culture. So I ended up using my training in the social sciences at Cambridge University to kind of go all over the world. I ended up going over 40,000 miles. I wanted to meet the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and, crucially, what solves them. And just people with really different perspectives, from an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have very low levels of depression, to a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if that made people feel better, to a lab in Baltimore where they were giving people psychedelics to see if that helped, ask me afterwards. And, and I learned a huge number of things, but the heart of what I learned is there's scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety that we know about so far. Two of them are indeed in your biology. Uh, your genes can make you more sensitive to these things, just like some people find it easier to put on weight than others. And there are real brain changes that happen when you become depressed that can make it harder to get out. But most of the causes of depression and anxiety for which there's scientific evidence are not in our biology. They're factors in the way we live. What I learned is once you understand those deeper causes, a whole different set of solutions begin to open up that should be offered to people alongside the option of, of drugs. Totally, and many of those things are social. And I think one of the in really interesting points that you make in the book is that the brain, I, I don't, it's probably inappropriate to call it branding, but this idea that depression is a mental illness, it's a disease, and to use that to destigmatize depression, right? 
with this idea that it's treatable and it's, it's a real affliction. And I'm not saying that it's not, but the reality is in studies, when people are told the underlying social, familial, trauma-based reasons why someone might feel disconnected and lonely and depressed, they're far more empathic, right, than when they're told that it's an actual chemical issue in their brain. I think part of the problem is, and I want to stress again, the biology is real. It's a real part of the picture. It's one part of a big picture. Problem is, and it took me a long time to really absorb this, when you tell people an entirely biological story, this isn't the intention of the people doing it, but what you're effectively saying to people is, your pain doesn't mean anything, right? It's like a glitch in a computer program. And, and the truth is, your pain, we feel these ways for reasons. These reasons are entirely understandable. And if you tell an entirely biological story, what you cut people off from is hearing the signal that the pain is offering us, right? And that can sound a bit fancy, so I'll give a few uh, ways in which people explain to me where it began to fall into place, and there's a lot of science behind. So everyone in this room knows we all have natural physical needs, right? You need food, you need shelter, you need clean air, you need a, a, a reasonable temperature. Um, if I took those things away from you, you'd be in real trouble real fast, right? But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. There's a whole range of them, of these underlying needs. And this culture we've built is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive in, in 2019, but we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep, underlying psychological needs. And in terms of what we do about that, I remember this shift from thinking of it, as I had for so long, as just a problem in my brain, to a, to a problem that has many causes, most of which are in the way we live, was really hard for me. And it only really began to fall into place for me what it meant when I went to interview this South African psychiatrist called Derek Summerfield. And, and Dr. Summerfield happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they first introduced chemical antidepressants for people in that country. And the local doctors, the Cambodians, were like, what are they? What are they? They'd never heard of them. So he explained. And they said, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy, right, like St. John's wort or something. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day, he stood on a landmine left over from the war with the Americans, and he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial leg, and he went back to work in the rice fields sometime later. But apparently, it's super painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial leg. I'm guessing it was pretty traumatic to go back to work in the fields where you got blown up. The guy started to cry all day. He refused to get out of bed. It, you know, he developed classic depression. This is when the Cambodians said, oh, that's when we gave him an antidepressant. And Dr. Summerfield said, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense. It had causes in his life. One of them said, you know, if we bought this guy a cow, he could stop working in the rice fields and become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was causing him so much distress. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. They said to Dr. Summerfield, so you see, Dr. That Cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? <laughs> now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way I was, the way most of us have, that sounds like a joke. I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. She gave me a cow. <laughs> but what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively from this individual anecdote was what the leading medical body in the world, the World Health Organization, has been trying to tell us based on the best science for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not weak, you're not crazy, you're not, in the main, a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs. Mm -hmm. And what you need is love and practical help to get those needs met. And look at what those Cambodian doctors didn't say. They didn't say, your depression isn't real. They didn't say, you need to pull yourself together. They said, we're going to pull together with you to figure out why you feel this way and deal with those underlying causes. That is what every depressed and anxious person deserves and needs. Absolutely. Yay. <laughs> let's, let's talk a little bit about SSRIs, because I thought that's a fascinating part of the book in the sense that you went back to all the research. I didn't realize this, that essentially when pharmaceutical companies are pushing drugs to market, they can cherry pick the studies 
that they want from their wealth of research to gain approval. But when you guys actually went and sort of looked at the metadata, that's when you were, I just want to know what you're writing. But, um, <laughs> I'm sorry. But no, but that's when you discovered, or you and a series of scientists discovered, or there was a discovery that actually SSRIs are effective for very few people and barely more effective than the placebo effect. So I think we've got to be, I think the truth about chemical antidepressants is kind of obvious to everyone who's taken them and knows them, which is they give you a bit of relief, but for most people, the depression comes back. And I didn't want to acknowledge that myself. If you've been told this story that it's just a problem in your brain and the only help you've been offered is a drug, it's very painful to acknowledge the truth, which is the drug does help a bit, and for some people, solves the problem, but for most of us, doesn't. And, you know, there's actually shockingly little long-term research into chemical antidepressants, but the best long-term research is something called the STAR-D trial. It's really simple. They just follow people who go to their doctors and say they're depressed and who are given various options like drugs, and they just follow them over time to see what happens. And significant numbers of people got relief. If you're one of the people being helped by these drugs, my advice is to carry on taking them. But most of the people taking these drugs did become depressed again. Uh, that's not the fault of the drug, right? But I think that just tells us, precisely because the problem goes so much deeper than our biology, the solutions have to go much deeper than our biology. Now, that's not a diss on the drugs, right? But it's, it's a sign that we've got to think... I think what we need to do is expand our understanding. We've got to expand our concept of what an antidepressant is, right? Mm -hmm. Think about the cow, right? That was an antidepressant. We've got to expand our idea of what antidepressants is to deal with the underlying causes. And that can sound a bit fancy, so I'll give you a really specific example that I think is kind of obvious, right? We are the loneliest society in human history. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none, right? There's another study that asked Americans, how many people know you well? And half of all Americans said no one at all. Not a single mm. person, right? Britain, we're just behind. In Britain, we're just behind the Americans in case anyone is feeling a bit smug. And, <laughs> and, and I spent a lot of time talking with the leading expert in the world about loneliness, a totally amazing man called Professor John Cassiopo. And one of things he said to me was, why are we alive? Everyone in this room, why do we exist? One key reason is that our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down a lot of the time. They weren't faster than the animals they took down a lot of the time but they were much better at banding together into groups and cooperating. That's our superpower. That's our deepest instinct, to band together into tribes. Just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. If you ever see a bee separated from its hive, it goes crazy, right? It doesn't make sense. We are the first humans ever to disband our tribes, and it's making us feel terrible. And and there are solutions to this crisis. So one of the heroes of my book, Lost Connections, is this totally amazing doctor called Sam Everington. I love Sam Everington. Uh, you, should, you should talk to him as well. I have, yeah. Oh, isn't he amazing? Yes. What a great, <laughs> what a wonderful, admirable man. So Sam's a GP, a general practitioner in East London, and in a poor part of East London where I lived for a long time. And Sam was really uncomfortable because he had loads of patients coming to him with depression and anxiety. And Sam knew depression has much wider causes than just in our biology, but all he seemed to have to offer people were drugs, which gave some relief to some people, so he's in favor of them like me, but he was like, he could see this wasn't solving the deeper problem. So one day he decided to pioneer a different approach. It's now spreading all over the world. It's an area behind the doctors, the suite of doctor's offices that's known as Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it's like. It's just like scrubland where dogs would go and, and shit. And uh, Sam said to, so this woman came to see Sam, called Lisa Cunningham, who I got to know later quite well. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. She was in a terrible state. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs, but I'm also going to prescribe something else. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known as, as Dr. Ali, as I say. Sam said to Lisa, what I'd like you to do is come and turn out a couple of times a week at Dog Shit Alley. I'm going to come too because I've been feeling really anxious. We're going to meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people and we're going to find something to do together so we won't be lonely and we won't feel like life is meaningless. The first time the group met, Lisa literally started vomiting with anxiety. It was too much for her. But the group starts talking and they're like, okay, what can we do? 
These are inner city East London people like me. They didn't know anything about gardening. They were like, okay, why don't we turn dog shit alley into a garden? So they start watching YouTube clips. They start reading books. They start to get their fingers in the soil. They start to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. But something even more important started to happen. They started to form a tribe. They started to form a group. They started to care about each other. If one of them didn't show up, everyone else would go and be like, are you okay? Do you need any help? The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. This approach is called social prescribing. Um, it was a, a study in Norway of a very similar program, found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. And I think for reasons that are kind of obvious, that I saw all over the world with all of the nine causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections, which is they were dealing with the reasons why people were depressed and anxious in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. These are the most effective antidepressants, the ones that identify why we feel this way and deal with those causes. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spot in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. We're going to take a quick break. If you listen to our spin-off podcast series, The Beauty Closet, then you know what our executive beauty editor, Jean Godfrey-June, sounds like. But if you don't know what she looks like, she's gorgeous, and her hair always looks amazing and effortless, and it's probably a couple feet longer than mine. So when Jean recommends a hair product, you listen. And right now, she loves the Pure Collection from the One Atelier Fikai. It's the new luxury hair care line by world-famous hairstylist Frederick Fikai, and it's his first totally clean collection. The products draw from the power of botanicals and are made with 95% natural ingredients. Some of them include aloe vera, hydrolyzed quinoa protein, pro-vitamin B5, and Edelweiss antioxidants. The Pure Collection is free of sulfates, parabens, and silicones, and it really works. Jean used the shampoo and conditioner this morning, and because she's way more of an authority than I am, I'll tell you what she said about them. They smell great, feel great, and leave your hair shiny and bouncy. It's truly no compromise. A chic, incredible performance shampoo and conditioner. I believe all this because Jean's hair really is that luxurious. You can find the Pure Collection in the Goop shop, or you can go to theonebyfakai.com. If you're on their site, enter code Goop at checkout to get 20% off your purchase of the Pure Shampoo, Conditioner, or Mist. Regardless of the occasion, I'll be happier if I'm in sneakers. Weirdly, this is a lesson that took me a while to learn. Comfort is the most important factor, especially in a shoe, which is probably the main reason we like Allbirds sneakers. They are insanely comfortable and really lightweight. They have a streamlined design, come in a lot of different colors and silhouettes, and go with everything. For all the sustainability enthusiasts out there, Allbirds are made with materials like ZQ certified merino wool, FSC certified eucalyptus fibers, and carbon negative green EVA foam. For everyone else, what that means is Allbirds cares about the environment, and they make shoes that are really versatile, style-wise and otherwise. Their wool runners are great for long days on your feet, and the tree breezers are the kind of flats that you'd wear straight from work to drinks. To get your own pair of Allbirds, or a pair for your kids too, check out allbirds.com. And now, back to today's conversation. And in the same way that I think we need to expand what we think of as antidepressants, we also need to expand what we think of as trauma. 
and, I, and pain, because I think that there's such a tendency to, and maybe it's, it's probably true for men too, I know it's true for women, but there's this, con this like pain scale comparison where you're like, I don't really deserve, how could I feel, like how could I be sad, right? Like, I don't deserve to be disconnected. I don't deserve to feel lonely, if that makes sense. But I think the reality is, if we were to do an inventory of anyone in this room's life, there's trauma, there's pain, and I think we, suppress it. I know you, in, your, in the book, it's very poignant when you're sort of talking about the things that happened to you as a child, and you're like, it's fine, it's not a big deal. And then someone was like, if you saw a child being strangled by an electrical cord, would you really think it was his fault? So this was the hardest. There were two causes of depression and anxiety that I found hardest to learn about, because they played out in my own life. And I'll talk about one of them, and if I explain this, I think you can only really understand it if you understand the story of how they discovered it. So for about two minutes, you're going to think, why is he talking about this? What, what's he going to... Just stay, stay with me, because I think it helps us to really understand. So in the mid-1980s, a doctor I got to know later, obviously, called Vincent Felitti in San Diego in California was given a quite difficult job. He was approached by Kaiser Permanente, the big not-for-profit medical provider in California, and they said, look, we've got a really big problem we don't know what to do about. Obesity is rising every year, and we're giving people diet advice, nutrition, nothing's working. It's getting worse and worse. Please just figure out what the hell we should do. So they gave him quite a big budget and said, go away, do blue skies research, right? So he started to work with 250 severely obese people, people who weighed more than 400 pounds. Mm. And he's working with them. He's like, what can we do? And one day he had an idea that seems, and in some ways actually is, quite stupid. He said, what would happen if really obese people literally stopped eating and we gave them like vitamin C shots so they didn't get scurvy and that kind of thing? Would they just burn through the stores of fat in their bodies and get down to a healthy weight? So with a shit ton of medical supervision, they try it with, with these people. And incredibly, in one sense, at first it worked. So there's a woman I'm going to call Susan to protect her medical confidentiality who went down from being more than 400 pounds to 138 pounds, right? This is not unusual in the program. And as you can imagine, she's like telling Dr. Felitti saved her life, her family is celebrating. And then one day, something happened that no one expected. Susan cracked, she went to KFC, actually it wasn't KFC, that's projection on my butt. She went, um, <laughs> she went to some, you know, Wendy's or whatever, starts gorging and pretty soon she's back. Not where she was, but at a dangerous weight. And Dr. Felitti called Susan in and he's like, Susan, what happened? And she looked down, she said, I don't know, I don't know. And he's like, well, okay, can you tell me about that day, the day you cracked? Did anything happen that day that didn't happen on other days? It turns out something had happened that day that had never happened to Susan. She'd been in a bar and a man had hit on her. Not in a nasty way, in a nice way. She felt really threatened, she fled and she starts eating. So when Dr. Felitti thought to ask her, Susan, when did you actually put on this weight? In her case, it was when she was 11. He said, did anything happen when you were 11 that didn't happen when you were 8 or 14? Anything that year? And Susan looked down and she said, yeah, that's when my grandfather started raping me. Dr. Felitti interviewed everyone in the program. He discovered that more than half of them had put on their extreme weight in the aftermath of being sexually abused, which is such a weird, that's so much higher than the general population. He's like, well, how can that be? What's going on here? And Susan explained it to him really well. She said, overweight is overlooked, and that's what I need to be. He, he realized this thing that seems so irrational, obesity, and obviously is bad for you, actually was performing a positive function for these people, right? It was protecting them from sexual attention, which is something they had a very good reason to want to avoid. But this is a small study, right? It's 250 people. So this is where it led to the breakthrough in depression and anxiety and addiction, actually. Dr. Felitti went to the Center for Disease Control, who fund one of the biggest funders of medical research in the whole world. And he got money to do a much bigger study. Everyone who came for healthcare in San Diego to Kinds Permanente for a whole year, don't matter what for, headaches, broken legs, schizophrenia, anything, was given a questionnaire that had two parts to it. First part said, did any of these bad things happen to you when you were a kid? Things like neglect, abuse, cruelty. Second part asked, have you had any of these problems as an adult? And initially, it was just going to say obesity. Then at the last minute, luckily for us, they add things like depression, addiction, suicide attempts. When the figures were added up, at first, they thought there'd been some kind of mistake. 
so they had to do them again. For every category of childhood, but they were right, for every category of childhood trauma you experienced, you were two to four times more likely to become depressed or, or anxious or addicted. But when you got into the multiple categories, it just blew up. If you'd had six categories of childhood trauma, you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide and 4,600% more likely to have an addiction problem. But I remember when I, I, remember when I first went to see Dr. Felitti in San Diego, if you met him, you would really like him. He's a lovely, <laughs> kind old man. And I remember, who's done so much good in the world, I remember cutting off the interview early because I was so angry, I thought I was shaking, mm. and I thought I was going to actually shout at him. And I was like, I remember leaving and walking on the beach and being like, why are you so angry with this lovely old man who's done all this good stuff? And, and I realized it helped me to understand why I had remained so committed to this simplistically biological story about my own depression, right, for so long, even when I instinctively knew it was too simplistic. So like you say, when I was a child, I'd experienced some very extreme things from an adult in my life. I didn't want to think about that. I didn't want to give this individual power over me. I just, I didn't want to think about it at all. But I'm really glad I did. And the reason I am glad is because of what Dr. Felitti discovered next, which I think is the most important part. So Dr. Felitti, anyone who would put on their form that they'd experienced some form of childhood trauma, their doctor was told, next time they come in, don't call them back, but next time they come in, say to them something like this. I see that when you were a child, you were sexually abused or whatever the nature of the abuse was. I'm really sorry that happened to you. That should never have happened. Would you like to talk about it? And 40% of people did not want to talk about it. But 60% of people did, and they wanted to talk about it on average for five minutes. At the end of that, it was randomized. Some of them were told, you can go and see a therapist to talk about this more. What's incredible is what the study found was just those five minutes of an authority figure saying, I'm so sorry, this should never have happened, you should have been protected. That alone led to a really significant fall in depression and anxiety. And the people who got more help had an even bigger fall. And this is part of a much bigger body of science discovered by people like an amazing guy at UCLA called Professor Steve Carl, who's an <laughs> incredible man, who discovered, which is, it's not the trauma that destroys you. It's the shame about the trauma. And giving people safe places to release that shame is an antidepressant. It's a really powerful antidepressant. But it goes back to what you were saying right at the start, I think, which is that you can see it was, it was in that experience, and I can talk about some of the other causes as well, this is one of the nine. In that experience, I could see the problem. My doctor, I'm sure, meant it compassionately to tell me it's just a problem in your biology, right? But you can see how what that did is it cut me off from a deeper understanding of what had happened to me and why I felt this way. And crucially, that cut me off from finding the solution, right? Now, that wasn't the intention of that doctor, who's a decent, admirable person. It's not the intention of anyone who says the biological stuff. And they're right, there are biological components. But if we tell too simplistic a story, we can't find solutions for lots of people. It's like, if you don't have an accurate map of where you're going, you won't be able to find your way through it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing. Oh, thank you. And I, I think, you know, I know you mentioned psychedelics, but I feel like for people who are trying to work through trauma, there are EMDR and lots of ways to sort of get at the... And I think what's really interesting about a lot of that work, childhood trauma work, is that part of the exercise is not only uncovering things that sometimes your subconscious has suppressed to protect you, but it allows you, it's your job in those moments, or job might not be the right word, but you comfort yourself. It's sort of that perspective shift of like you as, I don't know how old you were, 11, saying, oh, I deserve to be strangled by an electrical cord, but then when you get outside of yourself and you think about your own child or another child, you say, you can provide that comfort in that moment and sort of release that responsibility. Yeah, we're, we're, I think most people, who, most people who experience abuse as children are told they deserved it. You made me do this, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what happens is you, very often people internalize the voice of the abuser. If you go through life thinking you deserve to be treated appallingly, you're, that's going to lead to all sorts of problems in your life. But I think there's a more subtle form of this thought corruption, not related to childhood abuse, that was the other big cause of depression and anxiety that I felt, I mean, there were others, but these were the two that I could most feel in my own life and that I found hardest to learn about. So 
Everyone knows that junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, right? But there's equally strong evidence that a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and mm. made us mentally sick. For thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and showing off, you're going to feel like shit, right? That's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that is the gist <laughs> of what he said, right? But weirdly, nobody had scientifically investigated this until an incredible man I got to know called Professor Tim Kasser, who's at Knox College in Illinois, who is really an incredible mm. man. And Professor Kasser has discovered a, a few really important things. So it was known before him, all human beings, everyone you've ever met who's not in a coma, is a mixture of two kinds of motives, right? So imagine you play the piano in the morning because you love it, right? That's what's called an intrinsic reason to play the piano. You're not doing it to get anything out of it. It's just that's a moment that's meaningful to you when you're flowing. Okay, now imagine you play the piano, not because you love it, but in a dive bar that you can't stand to pay the rent or because your parents are massively pressuring you to be a piano maestro, that's their dream, or I don't know, to post the clips on Instagram so you'll get likes, right? That would be an extrinsic reason to play the piano, right? You're not doing it because that experience is meaningful. You're doing it to get something out of it further down the line. Now, obviously, all of us are a mixture of both these intrinsic and extrinsic motives. Obviously, you have to be. But Professor Kasser discovered a few things. The more your life becomes dominated by these extrinsic values, like money, status, and likes, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious by a quite significant amount. He also discovered, secondly, and as crucially, as a society, as a culture, we have become much more driven by these values, right? I don't mean it as a cheap dig at Donald Trump to say he's an obvious expression of that, right? A man who's constantly bragging about you know, crowd sizes, judges everything externally to the point where he mm. says he'd even have sex with his own daughter if she wasn't his daughter, right? So just judging even the most intimate relationships by these external values, right? Yeah. That's a very extreme example, but you get the, the point I make him, right? And I realized, I mean, when I learned this from Professor Kasser, thinking this was both kind of challenging because I could see how much when I felt down, I would try to get an extrinsic boost. I would show off, I'd try to get likes, whatever it is. But also kind of obvious, right? Everyone in this room knows none of you are going to lie on your deathbed and think about all the shoes you bought and all the retweets you got, right? You're going to think about moments of love and meaning and connection. But as Professor Kasser put it to me, we live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life. More 18-month-old children know what the McDonald's M means than know their own full name. From the moment you're born, you are inculcated. If you don't feel good, we've got a solution for that. Buy, spend, display, mm. right? It's like we've been fed a kind of KFC for the soul that teaches us to constantly seek happiness in all the wrong places. And Professor Kasser wanted to figure out, can we disrupt that machine? And he did a really interesting experiment with a guy called Nathan Dungan, who's in Minneapolis. A very simple experiment. Just got people to meet once every couple of weeks for a few months and talk about what are moments in your life where you've actually found meaning and purpose, right? I'm sure everyone can think of something. Now, some people talked about playing music, helping someone. We can all think of something. Professor Kasser, this group was designed to say, okay, how can together we dedicate more of our lives to these meaningful experiences and values and less to these junk values, right? Um, it was like a kind of Alcoholics Anonymous for the problems of consumerism and the bullshit it brings, right? And what's interesting is, we don't have these conversations in our culture very often. Just that experience of meeting once every couple of weeks for a few months and checking in and discussing about how they were adjusting their lives led to a measurable and significant shift in people's values away from these depression-causing forces. That's not the only thing we can do, there's a lot. But again, it's about realizing I think all the time, this, this, this Indian philosopher, Krishnamurti, mm. said, who I know you like, said, it's no sign of good health to be well-adjusted to a sick society, right? If you've got a culture that is poisoning us with food and values that don't meet our basic needs, you're not crazy if you're getting signals there's something wrong. Actually, that's a sign that you're healthy. That's the sanest part of you. But what I think we've done, this is the biggest shift I had to make, from thinking of my depression as a malfunction, something wrong with me, to a signal that my needs were not being met. And this is something I think all depressed and anxious people need to ask. What is your depression telling you? 
Now, that's an excruciatingly painful question, especially when you're in the middle of depression and anxiety. And it's partly why we shouldn't just be asking the depressed individuals to ask that question. We all need to ask that mm -hmm. question. And partly because the things that are causing depression and anxiety, the things that are making some people depressed and anxious are making loads of us less happy than we could be, right? Mm -hmm. I think you'd struggle to find anyone who could read the nine causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections and not feel some of them play out in their lives, right? It doesn't mean everyone's depressed, they're not. This sentence has got so long that I've forgotten where it began, but you get the point I'm making. I get your yeah. point. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. It's that time of the year again. We're celebrating one of our favorite holidays on Saturday, November 16th. It's called Ingoop Health. And for the first time, we'll be up north around San Francisco. If you're not familiar with Ingoop Health, it's our Super Bowl version of a wellness summit. Gwyneth and I will be hosting a series of talks and panels with incredible thought leaders. And there are many more extraordinary practitioners, teachers, and culture changers leading classes and workshops. We'll be covering a lot of ground, physically and metaphorically, We'll learn about intimacy, the power of connection, fasting, tools for reducing stress, and how to quiet our inner critics. We'll be joined by some of the people I admire most, like psychotherapist and psychological astrologer Jennifer Freed and psychiatrist Will Sue, who are teaching a joint workshop on manifesting your authentic self. Wall Street legend Sally Krawcheck will be leading a masterclass on money. Judy White is teaching a workshop on what dreams really mean. Walter Longo is giving us his longevity secrets. And you'll get to bounce on a mini trampoline with Lauren Roxborough, which is, coincidentally, my favorite pastime. And because it's Goop, you can also expect B12 shots galore, amazing food and drinks, and some surprises along the way. If you've been to an Ingoop Health before, I hope you'll be back. And if this is your first time, I can't wait to meet you. The summit is on Saturday, November 16th, and you can get tickets now at goop.com slash ingoophealth. And now back to today's conversation. But it, and it's interesting too, because I think we see this sort of like engorgement on one side culturally of people who are like, I'm trying to feed themselves and feed their throat, feed their souls through acquisition. And then you have one of the other primary drivers of depression and anxiety, which is people who cannot get their basic needs met. And so I think socially, I always butcher this term, but like universal basic income, like we need to create a safety net throughout our culture for people to be able to have autonomy, to be able to choose jobs that give them joy, or to at least not feel threatened every time they go to work that they're gonna ultimately lose their job and become homeless. So glad you asked about that. I think this is crucially important, right? So there's been a massive increase in financial insecurity in US and British culture over the, all throughout my lifetime, actually, the last 40 years. A huge increase. Half of all Americans have less than $500 set aside through no port of their own for if something goes wrong, right? Imagine how anxious you're going to be if you know your dishwasher breaks, your car breaks, you get a medical bill, you're just financially floored by that. That has led to a big increase in depression and anxiety. And those people have gone to their doctors and they've been told, oh no, it's just a problem in your brain, right? Which is mysteriously rising all around us, right? If, if you're financially insecure and, you know, and that's making you depressed and anxious, don't let anyone tell you that that's because there's something wrong inside your brain, right? There may be something wrong inside your brain as well. So it's interesting, what's the solution to that? And there was a pioneering, uh, again, think about the expanded idea of an antidepressant. This was pioneered in Canada. So in the early 1970s, the Canadian government chose a town genuinely at random. They literally, I think they literally put a pin in a map and said to loads of people, in the, they chose a town called Dauphin, which is in... Manitoba. And they said to loads of people in this town, from now on, we're going to give you a guaranteed basic income, right? It wasn't a huge amount of money. It was like the equivalent of 12,000 US dollars uh, a year. It's equivalent of about 10,000 pounds, right, in today's money. So, you know, you're not going to be homeless if you've got that, but equally, you're not going to have a fancy life, right? And they said to them, nothing you have to do in return for this money. There's nothing you can do that means we'll take it away unless you go to prison. We just want you to have a decent life. And they wanted to see what would happen. This was studied by an amazing woman called Dr. Evelyn Forger, who I interviewed. And what they found was loads of things. So almost no one stopped working, but loads of people held out for better jobs. It improved work conditions because people weren't desperate to get the next job. More women stayed at home longer with their babies because they wanted to do that. And more people studied for longer. 
But the most important result was there was a really big fall in depression, anxiety, and all mental illnesses. In fact, mental illnesses that were so bad, people had to be shut away in mental hospitals, fell by 9% in just three years. You won't find a drug that has that effect, mm -hmm. right? Now, again, it's like you said right, exactly where you started. With so many of the things I learned, I kind of felt like, in a way, that's really obvious, yeah, right? Yeah, no shit, right? Yeah, it's like I kept having this kind of no shit. I kept thinking <laughs> about my grandmother, right, who I absolutely loved. I love both my grandmothers. And I'm trying to imagine saying to my grandmothers, so, Nan, if, if, do you think someone is more or less likely to become depressed if they're really lonely, if they think life is all about money, if they're really broke? And my grandmother said, why are you wasting my time? Piss off, right? Like, obviously. This would have been incredibly obvious to all of our grandmothers, right? But what's happened is this biological story, which has some truth in it, and it's really important to keep stressing that, this biological story that has some truth in it has crowded out our much more natural instincts about why we feel bad. There's a really good example of this that I think is kind of shocking, actually. An incredible woman called Dr. Joanne Cassiatore, who's the leading expert on traumatic grief in the US. So, mm. she, so basically, she taught me about this, but in the 1970s, until the 70s, there was no official definition of depression for doctors to use. So in the 1970s, the American Psychiatric Association decided to draw up a definition, which is a good idea, right? So they drew up a definition. It was really kind of simple. It was basically 10 symptoms, kind of obvious things like crying a lot, uh, feeling life is meaningless, that sort of thing. And it sent them out to doctors. It said, if your patients experience more than six of these symptoms for more than two weeks, diagnose them as mentally ill, give them whatever help they need, right? So they start doing it. But not long afterwards, doctors start coming back to the APA and they're like, we've got a bit of a problem here. Using this criteria, we're going to have to diagnose every grieving person as mentally ill because these aren't just the symptoms of depression, they're the symptoms of grief, right? You think about it, you cry a lot, you lose your faith in the future. When we lose someone we love, this is how we feel. And the APA were like, oh shit, that's not what we meant. So they invented what was called a grief loophole where they said, okay, if your patients show more than six of these symptoms for more than two weeks, diagnose them as mentally ill, unless someone they love has died in the last year, in which case it's a totally understandable reaction, they're not mentally ill, don't diagnose them, right? But this begged a really obvious question, which is, well, why is someone you love dying the only reason why you're allowed to feel like shit, right? Mm -hmm. Why not if you lose your job? Why not if you're stuck in a job you hate for the next 40 years? We can all think of things, but as Dr. Cassiatore put it to me, that requires you to think about context. And our whole mental health system is not designed to look at context. It's designed to think in terms of brains and checklists. No, and it's not to say there aren't lots of psychiatrists who want to do better, there are. So what happened is the American Psychiatric Association reduced the amount of time you're allowed to grieve. It was initially before you're mentally ill. It went down from being a year to six months to two months. Now they've got rid of it. So now if your baby dies, that day you can be diagnosed as mentally ill. Uh, if you're still crying and really upset. And Dr. Cassiatore works with people whose children have died in horrific circumstances, like a woman who, whose daughter was raped and burned alive. And a lot of these people are told they're mentally ill. One woman whose baby died told her doctor that uh, about a year after the child died that she felt her child was talking to her when she went to sleep and it soothed her. That woman was told she was psychotic and given really powerful antipsychotic drugs. And I think you can see in that instance of grief the core of what we're getting wrong, right? Grief is not a mental illness. Grief is one of the most profound human emotions we feel. It's a form of love, right? It's a tribute to the people we've lost. And I don't think it's a coincidence that grief and depression have the same symptoms. I think partly what depression is, is a kind of grief for your own needs not being met for your own life not turning out the way it should. Now, when someone we love dies, we can't fix that. We can love and honor the person, and we can try to carry on the, the, the values they live by. But when your own needs are not being met, there's a lot we can do, right? And the last third of my book, Lost Connections, is really about very practical solutions that I saw all over the world, from Sydney to Sao Paulo to San Francisco, to these problems. But to do that, you've got to shift how we understand these things. If you tell people their grief is a mental illness, that you're sad for your baby and that's a sign you're psychotic, think about what that does to that person's pain, 
It delegitimizes their pain. It blocks their pain. What Joanne does in her amazing work, she set up an incredible ranch in Arizona where grieving families go and work with rescue animals. Hmm. Incredible rates of recovery, right? Because what that says is, you're right to feel sad. You should feel sad. You've been through a terrible thing. And you'll be loved and held and valued through that. That's quite different to the message that we're giving at the moment to distressed people, because we have a system that's basically designed get you back to work, right? This hyper-capitalist system that's designed, your job is to be a little worker drone, and if oh, your baby died, that's very sad, you've got two weeks to cry, and then back to work, right? You can see how these are inhuman, inhuman systems that don't, don't meet our needs, and we don't have to live like this, right? Mm -hmm. There are much... Humans have lived in different ways for long times, there are many societies today that are doing these things differently. Very often with depression, not in every case, there are things the individual can do, but actually what they most need is for, the, for collective help to deal with these deeper problems. We need to change the cage we're all living in, not just act like it's a problem in isolated individuals. And if it was just a problem in isolated individuals, why would it be going up so much, right. right? I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's not like all of us, our brains mysteriously started malfunctioning in 1979, right? There's obviously <laughs> something deeper going on that we need to understand. And at the moment, we don't have a system built to acknowledge that. But the roots of a better system are absolutely there. And I've seen them in practice all over the world. Thanks for listening to my chat with Johan Hari. For more, make sure to pick up a copy of his book, Lost Connections. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. How do you keep your children humble? I feel like a lot of time my child acts entitled and I'm not sure how to curb that, asks Kate. Well, Kate, you know, I think it's interesting because I think we are a generation of women reacting to something in the way that we were raised and we really want to have our children feel safe and loved and, and special. And sometimes I think maybe we go too far in that effort. My shrink Barry was saying the other day that we don't want them to experience pain and pain is what keeps them growing and, you know, not physical pain, but but challenges, you know, if somebody hurts their feelings or they don't make a team or, you know, those things that we, it's excruciating for us to feel on behalf of our children, but that it's actually really good for them and that we're, we're doing too much sheltering of our children in this generation. So it's a struggle for me too, but I, I really try to let my children kind of be in life and go through difficult challenges. And I always try to reflect back to them what I'm seeing when they're going through a hard time and reflect back to them what they were able to achieve. I think that in a way, entitlement is the other side of a coin, which is them feeling insecure in some way. And so they're expressing it as entitlement to kind of cover for it. And the more that we can show them what they're made of and show them what their resources are, I think the more grounded and the less entitled they become. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.